you are receiving this transmission, you are reclaiming the faith with Phil Baker on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Welcome to episode 47 of Reclaiming the Faith a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. I'm your host, Phil Baker. Now let's dig into history. Hey, y'all, thank you so much for taking time to listen to Reclaiming the Faith. Thank you so much for your prayers for me and my podcasting partners, BDK and Justin Fall, the Fourth Watch Radio Network, and your prayers for my family uh, are still going through this transition period. I don't know how long it's going to be, um, but looking for a new place of employment. But please, please continue to lift me up in your prayers as we humbly and prayerfully seek God's will. Well, today in episode 47, we're going to look at what an early Christian worship service looked like. We'll also discuss some core reasons why their services had such a drastically different approach as modern services of the 21st century. And finally, we'll look at why the early Christians were so effective at reaching the world for Christ without having the material resources that we rely on today. This show contains a significant amount of quotations from the early Christians, so I pray you'll be as blessed and challenged as I was when I first encountered these ancient words. Well, if you're blessed by today's episode, I really want to encourage you to leave a positive review on my iTunes channel, Reclaiming the Faith. Doing so will greatly help me out, as well as uh, reviewing my new album, which is also on iTunes in different places, this new album called The Shadows EP. If you've listened to it and you like those songs, please do me a favor and head over to iTunes and leave a positive review and rating. And also, if you've read my book, New Wineskins and the Simple Words of Christ, please head over to Amazon and also leave a rating and review there. That will help others so much and me as well. If you want to contact me, you can go to my website, philsbaker.com, and you can find my uh, email contact there, which is email philsbaker at gmail.com. I'm blessed to be a part of Justin Fall's Fourth Watch Radio Network, along with BDK of Omega Frequency, who I do a monthly Q&A show with called Ready With An Answer. And if you have any questions about this episode or any episodes that we talk about or maybe an ethical question, send me or BDK an email and we will be happy to answer your question on Ready With An Answer, which we do once a month. And finally, the early Christian quotes that I use can generally be found on the CD-ROM version of the Anti-Nicene Fathers, which you can purchase for $5 on the Scroll Publishing website. All right, well, let's get episode 47 rolling. Well, it's been said, if you were alone on an island and you'd never witnessed a church service and you only had a copy of the New Testament, after reading it, what would you imagine a gathering of believers would look like? Most likely, after reading the Bible, especially Paul's letters and Acts, 
you would most likely not come away with a picture of what usually goes on in church services in the West. Today, what I want to do is show you what the earliest Christians said their worship services, their gatherings looked like. And I want to encourage you to think about how that aligns with the scriptures, how they took a simple reading of the New Testament, particularly, and shaped their services accordingly. But before we get into the earliest Christian writings, I want to give you a description from a guy named Pliny the Younger. He's a guy who worked for the Romans around 111 and 113. He was a governor, and he wrote a, uh, a letter. He had several letters that he wrote back and forth with the emperor at that time discussing different matters. And in one of those letters, he talks about the Christians and how to handle these people uh, and uh, this is one thing that he said. According to these people, speaking of the Christians, on a, an appointed day, they have been accustomed to meet before daybreak and to recite a hymn to Christ as to a God. Then they would take an oath to abstain from theft, robbery, adultery, and breach of faith. After this ceremony, they left but reassembled later to eat together. So one of the things you see from Pliny, this, this pagan uh, governor, is that the Christians on Sundays generally met twice. And the first meeting was early, early, early in the morning where they sang together. Uh, and he, he says they sang together and they would take an oath to Christ as their God to live according to his morals, to live according to Christ's ethics, basically. And that's all we really get from Pliny in that section of his correspondence about what an early Christian gathering would look like, other than they met again later on that day, that Sunday, to eat together, which is, this is most likely referring to the love feast. Now, I'm going to jump forward a little bit in time, a few decades, to 160 AD, and we're going to look at some, some writings from Justin Martyr. Uh, occasionally, as I quote this, I'll, I'll pause and I'll explain a little bit of what's going on. So here we go. This is Justin Martyr. This is in 160 AD. He writes, On the day called Sunday, there is a gathering together in the same place of all who live in a given city or rural district. The memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Okay, let me pause there. So he's saying the Christians gather together on Sunday and the memoirs of the apostles, this would be the gospels primarily. And uh, you could think, you know, Acts and some of Paul's letters as well, John, Peter. Um, but he's, he seems to be focusing a little bit more on the Gospels here, or the writings of the prophets, and that could be from the Old Testament uh, primarily, or some prophetic work, maybe uh, John's uh, revelation. They're read as long as time permits. So think about this. Think about how much time is given to the reading of God's Word in modern churches versus early church services. It seems that the early Christians placed a much higher emphasis on the reading of God's word publicly 
than we do today. And think about why, why that might be the case. Justin continues, Then, the re- when the reader ceases, the presiding minister in a discourse admonishes and urges the imitation of these good things. And so he says, pausing again, they read the word, and then the guy presiding over the service stands up and says, guys, do that. (laughs) It's not a lengthy uh, speech given by a professional orator. It's just simple, straightforward. This is what we read. This is what we're supposed to do. Let's do these things. Let's do these things. Continuing. Justin says, next, we all rise together and send up prayers. So prayer was a central focus, a central point of emphasis in early Christian services. How much prayer is emphasized in modern Christian services? And why do you think it's not as heavily emphasized today? Justin continues, when we cease from our prayer, bread is presented and wine and water. Generally, the wine and water would be mixed. This is just my little um, insertion here. Uh, Similar to, as some of the writings say, when Christ was pierced, blood and water flowed out of his side. And so they would mix their wine with water uh, when taking communion. So the president in the same manner sends up prayers and thanksgiving according to his ability. And the people sing out their assent, saying the amen. A distribution and participation of the elements for which thanks have been given is made to each person and to those who are not present. They are sent by the deacons. Those who have means and are willing, according to his own choice, gives what he wills. And what is collected is deposited with the president. He provides for the orphans and widows, those who are in need on account of sickness or some other cause, those who are in bonds, strangers who are sojourning, and in a word, he becomes the protector of all who are in need. Let's pause again. Actually, we're coming to the end of Justin's uh, segment, but let's think about those those last phrases and thoughts. He says that those who have means and are willing each according to his own choice, gives what he wills. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't heard the podcast I did on giving God's way, on tithing, what the early Christians believed about tithing, I want to encourage you to go back in uh, on the website or on iTunes and go listen to that, because that'll really, um, if you grew up in a standard Southern Baptist church like I did, it'll really shock you as to what they believed about giving God's way. And one of the things is that they did not believe in tithing. I'll just kind of give you a spoiler alert. Um, They believed that giving should be voluntary and uh, it should be an expression of your faith. It should be costly, but they did not believe in 10% giving, especially as like a mandatory expression of your faith, 10%. that, That was absurd to them for many reasons. I really want to encourage you to listen to that podcast. But look at also what 
those funds are given to by the early church. It says that they're given for to provide for orphans and widows and those who are in need on account of some sickness or other cause, those who are in bonds, strangers who are sojourning. This, this money is given to protect those who are in need. And think about how funds are distributed generally in modern churches. It goes to support salaries of paid staff who do the work of the ministry. You think about that. And how the average church in America gives far less, far less than 10% of their budget to helping the poor around the world. My, how things have changed, how things have changed since the early church. Now we're going to jump into origin. This is around 248 and origin is writing a defense, an apology uh, of the Christian life. And he's talking about buildings. He says this, We refuse to build lifeless temples to the giver of all life. Our bodies are the temple of God. Of all the temples spoken of in this sense, the best and most excellent was the pure and holy body of our Savior Jesus Christ. He said to them, Destroy this temple And in three days, I will raise it again. This he said of the temple of his body. And when they reproach us for not deeming it necessary to worship the divine being by raising lifeless temples, we set before them our temples. So Origen is discussing how the pagans mock Christians basically for not having fancy buildings that they gather in. Temples. And Origen says, Are you kidding me? We have become the temple of the Holy Spirit because Jesus was the ultimate temple of the Holy Spirit and he dwells in us. So, like, how could we improve upon that? (laughs) You know? And that comes back to uh, the whole giving issue as well. But let's go to Mark Felix now in 200. He's also writing a a defense of, of, of sense. Again, speaking of buildings, he says, We assemble together with the same quietness with which we live as individuals. Describing their worship services, this was not uh, a rock show. It was not a rock concert. It was not a loud, raucous environment. It was serious and solemn. My how things, how, how things have changed. Tertullian in 2.12 He says, but you say, how will we assemble together if we do not pay tribute to avoid persecution? Well, to be sure, just as the apostles also did, who were protected by faith and not by money. Finally, if you cannot assemble by day, you have the night, the light of Christ luminous against its darkness. So be content with a church of three. It's better that you sometimes should not see the crowds of other Christians than to subject yourselves to paying tribute. Now, you can think about this kind of like the church in China right now where you have the state-sponsored church. And if you're willing to be a state-sponsored church and pay pay the appropriate fees or like in America become a 501c3, something like that, if you're willing to do that, then they'll let you have a church, but it's a church that's highly controlled by the government. You, you can't say or do whatever you want. You have to adhere to the, the governmental 
state religion or acceptable religion. And Tertullian's like, we would much rather have a church that can't, cannot assemble by day and have to gather together at night and just a, with just a couple of people than to have large crowds, crowds and be sellouts. And I'm not trying to suggest that Christians who gather in large churches are sellouts today, but that is something that Tertullian was warning about at the beginning of the third century. Speaking of Tertullian, we're going to read some more stuff from him right now, a little bit earlier in his first apology that he wrote to the Roman Empire. And he describes very thoroughly uh, Christian gatherings. Again, I'll read some and then I'll pause and explain as we go. And this first section is speaking more of the love feast, the later afternoon, early evening gathering that the Christians participated in on Sundays. He says, Before reclining, the participants first taste of prayer before God. Only as much is eaten as satisfies the cravings of hunger. Only as much is drunk as it befits the chaste. The participants talk as those who know the Lord is one of their hearers. After washing the hands, each is asked to stand forth and sing as he can a hymn to God, either one from the Holy Scriptures or one of his own composing. And from this, it will be recognized, quote, how he drank. So I'm going to pause there. It's interesting. Before they're allowed to take the Lord's Supper, each person basically has to, to testify. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Each, each person has to bring a song or a word or something that describes their, it, it's revealing the condition of their heart. And people are judged in one sense how they testify of the goodness of God before they're allowed to partake. Isn't that interesting? You can't just walk up incognito, take the bread and water or bread and wine or grape juice and go back to your seat. And you have to show what's going on in your heart, basically. It's interesting. Well, let's continue. Just as the feast began with prayer, so it is closed with prayer. We depart from the feast not like troops of mischief, mischief doers, but as ones who have as much care for our modesty and chastity as though we had been at a school of virtue rather than a banquet. Now, Tertullian continues speaking of, giving more of a description of general early Christian gatherings. He says, we meet together as an assembly and congregation that offering up prayer to God as with united force, we may wrestle with him in our supplications. This type of violence God delights in. We pray also for the emperors, for their ministers, and for all in authority, for, for the welfare of the world, for the prevalence of peace, and for the delay of his final consummation. So, Think of how much Tertullian is saying the early Christians value prayer in their assemblies, not just at home, not just in their small groups, you could say, but in their main assemblies. When they're coming together, they spend quality time 
praying. He continues, We assemble to read our sacred writings. If any peculiarity of the times makes either forewarning or reminiscence needful. However, however it be in that respect, with the sacred words we nourish our faith, we animate our hope, we make our confidence more steadfast, and no less by inculcations of God's precepts, we can form good habits. So, I want to encourage you there just to think again how highly the early Christians are placing the reading of God's word, how highly they value that, how central to their faith they view the public reading of God's word, not the public expression of man's word, the public reading of God's word. He continues, In the same place also, exhortations are made, rebukes, and sacred censures are admonished, for with a great gravity is the work of judging carried on among us, as it befits those who feel assured that they are in the sight of God. Now, Tertullian turns to a time when men's voices are used, men's thoughts are used, but they are with great, great concern and care carrying on the act of judging. It's interesting how Peter talks about how now is the time for judgment to begin with the household of faith. And Paul says in Corinthians that it's not those outside the church that we are to judge, but rather those inside. And so they hold each other accountable in their main gatherings. Think about that. How could that happen in in a modern church service? How can we be carrying on this this vital work of the church in a modern worship service, the way they are generally structured? Let's continue. This is still from Tertullian. The tried men of our elders preside over us, obtaining that honor not by purchase, but by established character. There is no buying and selling of any sort in the things of God. Now, again, think of who, generally, what types of people sit on our elder boards. Are these the people who are just blue-collar workers, or are they generally the rich and powerful in the world? It's interesting. It's interesting. Who is allowed to preside in the early church and who is allowed to preside in the modern church? Why do you think that is? And now Tertullian moves to money and giving. He says, Though we have our treasure chest, it is not made up of purchase money as of a religion that has its price. He's basically saying the big givers Don't hold the biggest votes here. He says on the monthly day, not (laughs) once a week, he says on the monthly day. So in Tertullian's time, they're only taking up a collection once a month. On the monthly day, if he likes, 
each puts in a small donation, but only if it be his pleasure, and only if he be able, for there is no compulsion. All is voluntary. These gifts are, as it were, piety's deposit fund, for they are not taken thence and spent on feasts or drinking bouts and eating houses, but to support and bury poor people, to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents and of old persons confined now to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck. And if there happen to be any in the mines or banished to the islands or shut up in the prisons for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession. It's really interesting. Again, he says these gifts that are given to the church are not used for celebrations, for extravagant days to reach the community. They're given to help the poor, needy, desperate Christians in the world and in the community. Now, why why are church services of today so different than church services of the early Christians? Well, just one core issue I want to deal with is the whole philosophy behind the early church's gatherings and today's gatherings. I want to read you Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11 and going through uh, verse 16. Paul writes this. He says, And Jesus gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service and to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of man, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, here in Ephesians 4, we really see Paul's uh, philosophy for ministry in terms of what the gatherings of believers is designed to do, who it is designed to reach. Paul, here in Ephesians 4, says the gatherings of Christians are designed not for the unbeliever, but for the believer. Seeker-sensitive church approach and philosophy is the opposite of what Paul says these spiritual gifts like pastoring and teaching have been given for. These gifts are there to equip the saints to build us up into a mature stature, to bring us into maturity, every part into maturity, so we can do the work of the church, training sessions for the church. 
to then be the body of Christ out in the world. And in doing so, the church grows. It's interesting. So Paul says church gatherings are for the church. And you see that in these writings that I read previously from the early Christians. Clearly, these are not services that would be particularly appealing to the unbeliever. And yet, the church, by the end of the fourth, or sorry, by the end of the third century, starting right at the beginning of the fourth century, of roughly a tenth of the Roman Empire had become Christians. So how are they able to achieve that? How are they able to achieve that great success, great, tremendous church growth, with it at many times being illegal to be a Christian, at many times uh, you're putting your life on the line to be a Christian without advertising? How were they able to do that without temples? Let's go back to Tertullian. This is in 197. And again, this is in an apology that he wrote to the, the emperor. He said, The more often that we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. For who that contemplates it is not excited to inquire what is at the bottom of it. Who after inquiry, does not embrace our doctrine. So it's interesting. He says, the way we reach the world is by dying. Literally, literally, we die for Christ. And then people, people are filled with awe. They're filled with curiosity as to why these people would die for these things they believe in. And that provides opportunities for the explanation of the gospel. And then when they hear the gospel, they are sold. And they're sold because, well, the Christians put their lives where their mouth was. They didn't just put their money where their mouth was. They put their lives where their mouth was. Now, I want to take this to Acts chapter 2 to describe what happened at Pentecost and, and the significance of uh the 3,000-member conversion that happened at Pentecost. But before I do, I want to go back to John chapter 9 to kind of set the stage. In John chapter 9, Jesus has healed a man that was blind from birth. This caused such a commotion in Jerusalem that the leaders of the Jews brought this man on trial, and they began to question him as to how this miracle that they, had, they could never fathom, a man being born blind, being healed— they began to question him about Jesus and to how, as to how he was made whole. And starting in verse 18, The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioning them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? Now his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. 
Now, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Now, it's very interesting when you're thinking about being put out of the synagogue, what that meant to people. This wasn't just being kicked out of the church. It held much worse consequences than that. See, the Jews distinguished three kinds of excommunication. The lightest continued for 30 days and prescribed four cubits as a distance within which the person may not approach anyone, not even his wife or his children with this limitation. It did not make exclusion from the synagogue necessary. So this is not most likely what is being told to the people in John chapter 9. If you're confessing Jesus, you'll be put out of the synagogue. No. So this is either step two or step three of their uh, types of excommunication. So the second, the severer, included absolute banishment from all religious meetings an absolute giving up of conversations with all people and was formally pronounced with curses. And the most severe, the third type, was a perpetual banishment from all meetings and a practical exclusion from the fellowship of God's people. It has been sometimes supposed that the words of Luke 6.22, when people separate you, they reproach you, cast out your name, refer to these gradations. So with that background, with the understanding in Jerusalem that you, if you confessed Jesus, you would experience the loss of your loved ones, the loss of community. You would basically be treated like a leper. With that in mind, consider what happens at Pentecost, starting in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made both has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Think about the boldness of Peter there. He's putting himself on the line. He's putting his ability to have connection with his family. You know, Peter is married at this point. He's putting it all on the line by calling these Jews to repent. And now look at the response. Verse 37, Now when the people heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation." So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people were willing to give up all for Christ. 
It's as if they were really taking Jesus's words to heart, the simple words of Christ, like from Luke 6, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. And in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know, if churches were to structure their services around the Word of God and not what they believed would attract people, it might cost them a lot. It might cost a lot. But isn't Jesus worth the cost? He who gave his all for us, is he not worth us losing all for him? And I just want to end this with a word of encouragement. You know, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47 is often quoted by different churches as the foundation of what they desire to be, the central verse and passage of what they desire to look like. I want you to think about the philosophy of ministry described in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It says this, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's very interesting when you look at that passage, their church struck, their church gatherings were for the believer, not the unbeliever. And yet they were growing every day, the Lord bringing people in. I just want to encourage you today, if God is calling you to make drastic changes in the way you approach church, to look more like the scriptures, God's going to bless that. It's going to be hard. It's going to be costly. 
People may excommunicate you and exclude you and mock you and ridicule you and insult you and say all kinds of false things against you. But God will be with you. We should by no means forsake the gathering of believers. But what should those gatherings look like? God bless you. You said go to seek me and you'll find And when you're low Just look to the night sky I've come so far You're faithful to your word It pricks my heart Your whisper it heals and Set on what gives it shape I don't